If you would, take your Bibles and turn open with me to Psalm 82. And hopefully today you have your handout, a bulletin. If you didn't get one, you can raise your hand, and I'm sure we have some swarthy gentlemen that will go and grab you one. And take, yeah, look that up in dictionary.com. Um, that will go off and get you one, no problem, and be able to bring it to you. And we'd also like everyone to have a pen. Those swarthy gentlemen are husbands. I like it. And all the women said, amen. Why does my husband act like a husband at church? Because he's under conviction, that's why. Anybody need a pen? No? No? We need some more handouts. Kevin, you care to grab some? Thank you. Man. Good, good. Excellent. Excellent. So everybody's got pen? Everybody good? Okay. I, I loaded up today. Yeah. I look like I'm getting ready to get beat up outside the science fair right here. It looks real good. So it's good. Before we jump into the text, I want to try to always go through what we're dealing with beforehand or what we've covered so far, the ground that we've covered so far. And the reason why that is is because we are hitting the major events from creation to the ascension of Christ because you can't understand the God-man who died for sin unless we get a very clear picture of who God is, who man is, and what sin is. Does that make sense? So we've got the Old Testament that gives us a complete and thorough layout of all of that in order to prepare us for Jesus. So the first thing that we dealt with is that the fact that the Bible, what you hopefully hold in your hand or what we have back there, and you're more than welcome to take home from the bookcase, is God's self-revelation. He wants to be known And so he has taken the time not just to evidence what is invisible about him in creation, but he has also put together 66 books to give us a complete understanding of everything that we would need to know to not just understand what our sin is and not just to believe in Christ in order to be saved, but also to live a life that no one else gets to live because of the work of Christ and the indwelling spirit of Christ. Everybody with me? Okay, great. Number two, God is eternal. He has always been, and he always will be. There was no beginning for him whatsoever. He is constant all the time. He is sovereign. He rules is the idea of sovereign in the Bible. He is the ultimate authority of which we are all answerable to. And everything that he creates is good because he does everything consistent with his character. One way that you can measure truth in society, anytime that you hear a truth claim or anything like that, the way that you measure that truth claim is you ask yourself the question, is it consistent? Because if it's not consistent, it has a flaw, and if it has a flaw, it's a lie. Everybody see how that works? Right? We're starting out real slow here, I promise you. So, that's what truth is. God has to be consistent with who he is, otherwise he is untrue if for no other reason, to himself. Man is a responsible agent. If you're here today and you have flesh on your bones and blood through your bloodstream, (laughs) you're responsible. I'm responsible. I'm responsible for everything that I do before a holy God. If he is the sovereign, I am answerable to him. We are responsible, but we're also held to a moral standard. Would we agree maybe today that morals have gotten lax in the world? I'll promise you this, it's nothing new, just because of media outlets, we have a greater exposure to it. 
But you study any ancient civilization that has walked away from the almighty, eternal, sovereign God, morals get lax real quick. Anybody see a big change? Of course, I wasn't around for this, but anybody see the big change that happened when they took the Bible out of schools? We've got problems, don't we? Hopefully your prayers in your heart is with the, with the students at Parkland School in Florida now because of what tragedy is going on there. There's a lot of factors wrapped up in that. Mental health issues, gun control, whatever you want to say. Uh, and that's a whole other thing that we could talk about in personal conversation. But it's tragic. And what you find is there's nothing about God that's in it. In fact, we could look at that situation and say, you know what, that's godless. And the only way that you can make a claim that something is godless is you must have some sort of inkling about moral standards that a God has set. Does that make sense? Okay, good. The fourth one, sin originates in a person. It originates within us. We have the capacity to sin. And if you have a child that is older than six months, you're not surprised, right? Sin originates within a person, and sin separates us from God. When we talk about death, we don't talk about ceasing to be. We talk about separation. Death separates us from God, and all sin leads to death. The last one here. God declares someone righteous by faith alone, apart from works. Here's the reason why. If every single person has sinned, then everything we do, regardless of what it is, is tainted in some way. It is less than perfect as Almighty God is perfect. Therefore, Anything that we would try to bring for him to accept us would be seen as absurd and trivial, ridiculous, almost insane. God, can you accept me because of this imperfect thought that I've had? Well, no. He demands perfection. And so what does he do? He sends perfection in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sin, for your sin. Why? So that by giving the sufficient work necessary to gain access to God, we can be accepted by him by faith. When we believe in Christ, he declares you and I righteous. Now that's a pretty good deal, right? That's better than any returns you're getting on the stock market. Good gravy. Good stuff. So with that foundation laid so far, we now venture into a scary area for a lot of people. And that is the area of spiritual warfare. Can anybody tell me where spiritual warfare is found in the Bible? Where do we commonly think it's found at? Do we know? How many people have a Bible? Okay, just making sure. Good. What do we think? Talk to me. I like to talk. If you haven't haven't noticed, you haven't been here a long time, I like to talk. What is it? Okay, when Jesus was tempted, that might be a situation. Everybody else sounded like gobbledygook. What was it? Daniel? Okay, Daniel, some spiritual warfare. Job, the garden, good. So we see so we see that there are elements of spiritual warfare more than just Ephesians 6, right? Put on the full armor of God. A lot of times people just go to that and, well, that's the only place that deals with it. It's not. And what we're getting ready to see here is a massive exercise of power in spiritual warfare. So what, in order to prep our minds for what we're going to see in Yahweh God, remember Yahweh, 
is the personal name for God. And it means I am the self-existing one. I need nothing else to exist. I exist on my own. That's his personal name. We're going to cover a lot of scripture today. But in order to prepare us, Psalm 82 is going to do the job. So I want you to watch what's going on here. God takes his stand in his own congregation. Now, we stop right there, and some of you have got some different translations. And we've covered this way, way back. We covered this actually in, in the third sermon that I did here to prep everybody for what was going to go on with the serpent in the garden. So we're, we're hitting this psalm again to get our minds prepared. Some of you will say, in the company of his assembly is the idea. Does anybody got anything different in the council? Does anybody have anything like that? He stands in the congregation. The divine council is the idea. Yahweh God, the creator of all things, has gathered supernatural beings together. And these are actually celestial angels, we would call them, fallen angels, which we would equate to being demons, those types of things. It says here, he judges in the midst of the, how many people have rulers? NASB has rulers. How many people have something else? What do you have? Gods with a little g. It is the word Elohim. Elohim is actually a generic name for God. That's why when we're reading through the Bible, and you, you guys who are in Deuteronomy will know this, uh, whenever we're reading through the Bible and we see the Lord your God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, we are dealing with that being Yahweh, the self-existing one, your Elohim, your God. Yahweh sets himself apart from anything else that would be considered deity as a celestial being because he is the creator, he is above and beyond who they are, and he has revealed himself personally, especially to the patriarchs of Israel. Everybody with me? Okay, so that's what we're getting at here. So notice, he's judging in the midst of these celestial beings who are known as little g gods. He says here, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That is Yahweh's accusations against them. Now, why is that? Because little g gods have been given a territory of responsibility. In fact, what you find is that little g gods are actually responsible over the nations of the earth. And this is what sets Israel apart as God's people drawn unto himself, and Yahweh alone is their Elohim. Does that make sense? So all the other nations have demonic celestial influence behind the scenes that we don't see. Now, it doesn't take long watching CNN to say, amen, preach it, right? We see that. But notice here, he's dealing with it. And Yahweh's accusation against them is, is they're judging unjustly and they show partiality to the wicked. With the responsibility that these demons have in their hands, they are failing morally according to Yahweh's standard. Now, if this is new for you or this is heavy stuff or you think that your head's getting ready to pop off your neck, it's okay. You got all week to study it till next Sunday because we're going to pick up and deal with the same subject and move on. So, Verse 3, here is his directive. He tells them, vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue 
the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. In other words, little g-gods, this is the way that you should be governing those entrusted to you. Think about who we're dealing with here. Take care of the weak, the fatherless, justice for the afflicted, the destitute, rescuing the weak and the needy. Deliver them all out of the hand of the wicked. Keep them from these atrocities. We talked about this a while back when we talked about the nature of suffering. One of the biggest questions we have as Christians is why, isn't it? Does this give you maybe some glimpse into the unseen as to why? Could it be that there are places that demons have territorial rule and responsibility over of which they have been commissioned and directed by Yahweh to govern them faithfully and they are failing and they are giving partiality to the wicked instead of taking care of the people who desperately need it? Does everybody see how when we talk about the idea of judgment, it is on a much greater plane than we could possibly understand? Do, you, do, do we see that? Do you see that? Verse 5, here is his conclusion, his evaluation of the council. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, little g. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Sons of Elyon is the idea. You are all a direct creation that Yahweh the Creator took the initiative to bring into being for the sake of faithfully ruling behind the scenes over this creation. Adam and Eve were created, they sinned, and they forfeited their responsibility to have dominion. Who rules now? Celestial beings. And from Jesus' own mouth, especially in John 14 and 16, he talks about Satan being the prince of this present darkness. Satan is currently ruling. See, this is why this whole the kingdom is here now stuff doesn't work. Look around you. If the kingdom's here now, Jesus is not very good at it. Everybody see that? And I don't, I'm not trying to sound blasphemous, but let's be honest. If you, Man, you're a perfect savior, but got to clean this up, Jesus, right? He's not ruling now. It's all under the control of Satan. It's all under the power of Satan. It's all deceiving. And this is why we have got to have our noses buried in the word to be able to see clearly the things that are around us. He says here, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Verse 7, nevertheless, you will die like men. You may be celestial beings, but you will perish just like a created being of flesh and bone would perish. And you will fall like any one of the princes. It says here, arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Or if you have a New King James or an ESV, it says, you are the one who shall inherit all the nations. All the nations are Yahweh's. They are ruling, or get this, they are stewarding in his stead. And they are stewarding poorly. What does that leave Yahweh to do? Well, as a perfect and sovereign and eternal and just judge who is the creator of all things and holding a moral standard, their actions have merited them death. These angels will die because of their misdirection. Now, aren't you all bright and cheery and glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> Praise God, right? So let's move on to Exodus 5. We're not going to hit everything here. 
I encourage you to read Exodus 5 through 10 over and over and over and over and over again for the next two weeks, please. We're actually going to look, I know your notes say, your notes say 1 through 2, we're actually going to look at 1 through 4 here. Exodus chapter 5, look at verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, and I'm going to go ahead and supply the words to make it consistent with what we're talking about as you would read it apart from how they've... I'll just shut up and read it, okay? Here's what they say to Pharaoh. Thus says Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, now think about this. Think about it real quick. Imagine imagine you being the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth at that time. You have two guys that come in that are just completely toasted from the sun. They want an audience with you. They're going to make a request of you. You have the power to grant it, or you could squish them like a grape if you wanted to. But here's what they say. Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, has requested let my people go so they can worship me. Now, what's Israel doing right now for you? Everything. They're washing your car. They're rubbing your feet. They're giving you caviar. There's no end to it, is there? And to think that they would be relieved from their duties for any period of time would be a financial devastation. So I love Pharaoh's response, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. Or let's put it this way. We worship all kinds of gods here in Egypt, of which I am one, but I never heard of this guy. I don't, is he over the sun? Is he over the river? Is he over the sand? Is he over the palm trees? Is he the coconut God? Who is Yahweh? We don't know who he is. But here's the thing. If I don't know him, he must not be worth paying attention to. Pharaoh's full of arrogance. I don't know Yahweh. And besides, which sounds like even if I did know Yahweh, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God, the Elohim of the Hebrews, has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our Elohim. Otherwise, now get this, this is interesting to be saying before the world ruler who considers himself a God and is looked at as a God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Don't bother me with this nonsense. You guys are deluded. You guys have got problems. But the one thing that you're not doing is you're not working. Now, if you're familiar with this or you've hung out with Cecil DeMille anytime recently, you know that what happened after that is now they were commanded to make the same quota of bricks, but they had to go gather their own straw in order to make it happen, right? So, in that case, the labors become more intense, the oppression has become hard, and now when Moses comes and wants to speak to the people of Israel, what do they do? Leave me alone, Moses. 
It's all because of you going before Pharaoh that you caused all these problems. Trying to get us all psyched up about our God, saying that he cares about us. Go away. You've done nothing but make life harder. Just because life got harder, did it change who God was? See, that's the thing to remember. Regardless of how hard life gets, God doesn't change who he is. Now, let's skip over here to chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I shall do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go. Does God have perfect knowledge of the future? He does. Now this is interesting. Pharaoh's going to let the people go, but he doesn't stop there. Look at the next part. And under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. He's not just going to click open the lock and kind of open the door and and let them go. He's going to say, y'all get out of here. You guys have made a mess. You are the source of all of my problems Why everything around me is a devastation. Get out is the idea. Now, this doesn't seem to be Pharaoh's attitude up front, does it? Not at all. But notice, God is going to show them that he is God, that he alone is God. Look at verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, right? Everybody got Amy Grant in your head now, right? El Shaddai, God Almighty. Now, in my research that I found, I think that a lot of the translators have messed this little portion up because read what it says. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, here's the problem. The word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is mentioned 160 times in Genesis alone. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all knew the name Yahweh. So how this should actually be translated is in the form of a question. In other words, we would read it like this. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name did I not make myself known to them. By my name Yahweh did I not make myself known to them. In other words, I was very clear and I was very emphatic with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about who I am. You being their descendants should have that knowledge passed on to you is the idea. Does everybody see how that works? Okay. So notice it says here, verse 4, I also established, now here it is, my covenant with them, the Abrahamic covenant. Had to get that out. Abrahamic covenant, which is the land, the seed, And the blessing, right? Abrahamic covenant. So he's drawing their minds back to the covenant. Why would he draw their minds back to the covenant? Because it is a promise. Because it is a time when Yahweh stooped down, condescended himself, and made an agreement with people of which Abraham did not get to shake the hand, only God's presence passed through those pieces, and it is unconditional in nature, which he will fulfill, and if Yahweh fails to fulfill his word, may he be cut in two like the animals that they walked through. So everybody got that in their minds, right? So notice, when they say the word covenant, number one, you ask the question, which covenant are they talking about? The only covenant they have so far is the Abrahamic covenant. But then you stretch it back and you have to think about 
What are the ramifications of that covenant? And what it is is the fact that God's word stands and his faithfulness is contingent upon it. So now he's conjuring up, remember these promises here. He says here, Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. If you don't have any problem marking in your Bible and your conscience is clear before the Lord, mark these I wills. Very important. There's eight of them in these three verses here. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And number two, I will deliver you from their bondage. Number three, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Verse seven, then I will take you for my people, and I will, number five, be your Elohim, and you shall know. Now watch this. This isn't talking about, I think that's right. No, no, no. Get what he's talking about. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The next one, verse eight, number six, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will, number eight, give it to you for a possession, for an inheritance. I am Yahweh. Do you think that our Lord wants to prove a point? That's the understatement of the day, isn't it? He is going to get a message across. Now think about where the Israelites are. They're discouraged. They're having to work harder than they've ever worked before because when God got in the mix of everything, everything just got harder. I actually saw an interview with a guy that used to be a Christian. He said, you know what? I just found that without God, things were a lot easier. You know what that told me? I could be worldly and not worry about my conscience. God, just leave me alone. I can just sin and not say it's sin and be all about sin. And I'm okay with sin. Morally wrong. When God got in the mix, things got hard. Did things get bad? See, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Just because things got hard, did they get bad? No, now God's involved. Everybody see that? Just because it got hard doesn't mean it got bad. So now we move on to the next part. Truck on over, chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. Yahweh is talking to Moses, and here's what he says, verse 4 and 5. When, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out, now watch this, my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall, here it is again, shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the self-existing one when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. They will know. God wants everyone to know He is Yahweh above all the gods that they revere reverence. Now, skip down to verse 17. 
because now we deal with the first plague. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do, is I'm going to ask you to pull out the second little handout I gave you, which is called the framework approach. Some of you will probably remember this. When I came to candidate as a senior pastor, I had everybody pass this out. Everybody got a copy of this. Now, I'm sure that you have all held on to it like it's priceless gold. So I wanted to furnish you with another piece of priceless gold because I want you to be rich in the Lord, right? Notice also that it's got enough margin room where you can cut it down and tape it into your Bible. This chart isn't cool because I put it together, okay? I think that's important to realize. This chart will help you in dealing with any situation of any argument or conversation that you ever have with someone about the nature of life and being. And here is the reason why. Because Satan would like us to think that there are a bunch of different beliefs in the world. There's not. There's two. That's it. There are only two beliefs. They fall solidly in two categories. And what we're actually going to see in this Exodus event with these plagues that come upon Egypt is the battle of these two sections. They are battling. The first section here, and probably the one we're going to be worried about, the continuity of being, it is the idea that God is man, is animal, is reptile. They're all just kind of in one big pot. You just stir them together and they pop out as some kind of morph of something. Now, from what we know about Egypt, probably the most famous thing that we know about it. Anybody ever been to Egypt? Anybody? Okay, so some of you have. Awesome. Anybody see the Sphinx? You see it? Okay, so both of you saw the Sphinx as well. You guys are a wealth of knowledge. But what is the Sphinx when you look at it? It's the body of what? A lion and the head of what? The head of a man. And God even wanted us to know that it was bad, so he broke his nose off, right? We all, we all know him because he's got the head of a man, but he, just break that nose right off and you know who's God. That's good. But notice, whenever we try to come up with what is God like, well, we just take one of some created thing and another of some created thing and we start to do Legos with them. It just ends up being a Lego creation of something that we try to manifest to be God. That's the idea of the continuity of being. You deal with some crazy things like uh, is it Mormons that believe that if they're uh, good enough people, knock on enough doors and things like that, they can become gods of their own planets. And ladies, your joy in life is to be eternally pregnant in birth planets. Right? Nobody's signing up for that. Bad, bad day. So we see this, it's still prevalent in our society. Well, notice the first one, myths. Greek and Egyptian gods or demons in pagan worship. That's what we're dealing with here. You could also look at other areas, philosophy, things like naturalism, Darwinian thought, or evolution, or the fact that you yourself, it's all about you and your self-esteem. You are the God in the situation. You determine your destiny. It's all about self, self, self. Eastern religions, there are many answers. All you need is some enlightenment, that type of thing. Let's all go sit on a pedestal 30 feet in the air and, and, and think about butterflies or something weird. Uh, or liberal theology, the Bible's not true, is essentially what it boils down to. Everything is subjective. Well, that verse, that verse means whatever you feel it means. Aren't you glad that the Bible's not all feely like that? My Bible would be all gooey with all kinds of weird things, right? But the basic tenet is, nature equals man equals animals equals gods. They're all on the same plane. There's not ever one that's any higher than other. If there is, it's just because you haven't made it there yet. You haven't climbed up the staircase enough to attain this godhood that you should have. 
The means is always transmutations. It's always evolution. It's always mixing. It's always piecing it together like a Lego creation. Salvation, in those terms, is always works-based. It's always how good you do, whether you pray in the right direction, whether you've done so many jump up, sit down, run around, jumping jacks, whatever it is. They've always got some checklist for you to accomplish. And your acceptance is based on your submission. It seeks to substitute divine revelation in every aspect and it suppresses truth. They don't want you to know what it really is, but you better perform or you won't be accepted. It's evil. Notice here, what's the ending point? It's all by chance. It's all random. It's all impersonal fate. You're a victim of your surroundings and your circumstances. It's never your fault. You're not responsible. It's because your dad was weird. It's his fault. That's how people shirk that responsibility and get out of it. It all conforms to this idea that somehow we are above accountability and responsibility. With Yahweh the Creator, completely different. It's monotheism. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. He alone. That's it. The testimony of Israel is what we have as an example for that. Why? Because he demonstrates his personal nature. Gods, by and large, are not dictated as personal in nature. How many of you have taken a class in college or even seen some of this stuff in high school where you've had this idea of studying other belief systems and myths and religions and gods, and you always find out, are they personal? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've had a class, like even if it's philosophy like that. Nobody's had that class. Okay, good. Praise the Lord. Okay, raise them high. Encourage me. Okay, praise Jesus. Good. This is being taught today everywhere. What's not being taught is the truth. What is being taught is everything that is in this top box. The bottom box, absent from society. I promise you. And we wonder why so many things are messed up when people graduate. That's the reason why. They got everything but truth. It's dangerous. Notice what we have as evidence is the Bible. A revealed standard of truth. A revealed standard of truth that is able to be understood. How many of you ever heard, well, I don't believe in the Bible? Heard that? The Bible believes in you, exactly. Have you read it? Have you ever read it? Well, what part don't you believe? Here, take my Bible and show me what part you don't believe. They don't know what to do with it, do they? They don't know. Never hurts to call them to task on that. A lot of people hate a lot of things they never tried. For, the, for years, we hated avocados. We never tried them. Beth and I talk about it all the time. Can you believe there was a time that we just didn't like avocados and we never even tried them? And of course, I'm always like, well, I wouldn't eat guacamole because it had onions in it. I didn't want anything to do with it because I hate onions. But if you take the onions out of guacamole, it's so good you want to smear it on yourself. Oh, Something that'll just cleanse your complexion like you don't even know. Don't wipe it off. I just lick it off. I'll get to it. It's so good. It's amazing the crazy biases we hold about things. So, and the last part here, fundamentalism. In other words, you actually believe that God's word is true because God has told us that his word is true and can be proven both internally and externally to be true. Now, and real quick, just so you know, that is where the battle is always. The battle is always, is the Bible true? Regardless of what smokescreen Satan wants to put up or arguments he tries to get Christians in, 
push all that junk out of the way and boil it down to, is God's word true? And what you find out, sadly, in a lot of seminaries today, they'll tell you, no, it's not. It's true when you want to talk about faith. It's true when you want to talk about applying your faith to your life. But if you want to talk about any other area of life, the Bible doesn't tell you the truth on that. God made a mistake. Shocking. What are the basic tenets? Well, here it is. God is the creator, and he is greater than man, nature, and animals. What is the means? The order is very clear in Genesis, isn't it? After its own kind, after its own kind, after its own kind. God was very clear of wanting us to get the idea of everything is created after its own kind. It's not something morphs into something else, none of that stuff. What is the salvation? God does not have to save anyone. He chooses to do so by his grace. He doesn't have to. And if we all died without salvation, you couldn't blame him for it. He didn't put us in the mess. We did. But by his grace, he steps forward, being the one offended, and he provides the solution to the offendee. Does that make sense? Or the offender, I guess it would be. So notice, it's by his grace. It's appropriated only by faith. Abraham believed God's credit and righteousness, and only Jesus saves you. There's only one way to salvation. And God is very clear about what that is. What is the ending point? That there is a personal and sovereign God, and the human has personal responsibility and moral obligation to him. You have to answer. Somebody's got to give an answer at some point. Everybody's going to answer for their own. And this whole, it was because of my dad, well, my neighbor made me do it, all that stuff, it's not going to fly in Yahweh's eyes. Those arguments only work here. They don't work there. There's only two belief systems. This is what we're getting ready to see. Hold on to this. I promise you it will become useful as you critically think about your surroundings. Chapter 7, verse 17. We are on a marathon. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall what? Know that I am Yahweh. Everybody see this constant theme of what he's getting accomplished here? Pharaoh, you say you don't know Yahweh? When I'm done, you're going to know who Yahweh is. He says here, Behold, I will strike the water that's in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul. Excuse me. And the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, over the reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did even as Yahweh had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and he struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Yul Brynner and in the sight of of his servants, making sure you're paying attention. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died. That's not the way to catch fish, is it? No, they all die. They all come to the surface. And the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink the water of the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians, these guys, of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. Notice, they imitate this plague, imitations. You want to know something that defines Satan's kingdom and demonic rule? It's always imitation of what Yahweh has done. Why is it that the Antichrist in the end times is going to suffer a mortal wound and die, but then be resurrected and receive the, 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 the approval and the applause of all the people? Because he is simply imitating the resurrection of Christ that's already taken place. He is a deceiver. And he's not very original. 
What did God do? Okay, we'll try that. Not very original. That's supposed to be funny. Whatever. Moving on. So it says here, yeah, we, we laugh at how not funny your joke is. <laughs> so notice, they, they do the same with their secret arts. Everybody see secret arts? Demonic. There it is. Secret art. You'd be surprised how many commentaries say, now, we think maybe they took food coloring of some sort at that time, and they put it in some water, and maybe that's... How... No, it's demonic. That's what happened. Demonic. Demonic forces are at play, and demonic forces have power to do things. So it says here, the secret arts in Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, and they could not drink the water of the Nile. And seven days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. Now, everybody take a look up at the screen. Let's talk about the Nile in the midst of Egypt. When we talk about this idea, this map here, everybody think that the Nile is important to Egypt? Look at everything around it. Look at everything that's listed. Every place that you would seek to have civilization, this thing supplies vegetation and nutrients to everything that goes on. Blood. All of it. Now, between the months of June and August at this time, there used to be an annual flood that would happen of the Nile. And it was very important at that time for the Egyptians that this take place. This is why they were all wrapped up in these gods that were over the Niles that would flood over into the situation. And hopefully when it recedes back, it leaves some of the water so that there's an opportunity for other things to grow. In 1961, they built a dam to stop it from flooding so that they could come by other means of, of making that happen. But up until that time, annually, you could always trust in the flood. Well, they believed that the gods brought that along because this was so central Yahweh attacks five gods in this very first plague I've got them written down for you if you want to follow along but I happen to get their high school yearbook photo and want to show them to you okay the first god they do is Osiris let's take a look at this guy there he is and some depictions you may have seen probably of stone carvings he also has uh, a, a king cobra snake that's like this out of the top of the head you've seen some of that as far as Egypt is concerned Osiris was believed to be the guarantor of eternal life. He gave life to crops. He caused animals to grow. He also is the one who gave the flooding of the Nile. The next one, number two, Hopi is his name. Here's his yearbook photo. Looking good there. He, he was over the water. He's a fertility god. He controlled the water of the Nile. Uh, during the annual flood, the Egyptians would set statues of him out and throw offerings into the water in order to reverence him for his blessing on overflowing these things. The third guy, Kunum, I think is how you say his name, or Kunum, something like that. He's the guardian of the Nile. Nothing happens without him knowing about it. He completely guards everything that's going on. He fashions people and animals, and gods out of clay on a type of potter's wheel and then sets them loose to be. That's what they believed about these people. He's an interesting looking guy. Does everybody see the continuity of being? Right? We got the body of a man and the head of some kind of goat looking animal something. It's bad, right? That's what we need to classify it as. The fourth god, Sobek. This will look more familiar, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. He's got a crocodile head. That's getting original with it, guys, right? Sobek, he was known as the Lord of the Waters. Now, here's the thing. Crocodiles like it when it's all wet, don't they? They like those moisturized places. 
But you put everything into blood, what happens to the crocodiles? Well, they either die or they flee. And where do they flee if you live in Egypt? Your house, right? Now, here's the sad thing. The Egyptians viewed crocodiles, they reverenced crocodiles like India today reverences cows. And people over there are starving to death, and they've got culvers walking around all around them. But notice, it's their unbelief that keeps them from being fed and staying alive. Everybody see the deception that Satan brings into these situations. So they can't harm a crocodile. They could be harming a god. Then what would that god do to their family? Everybody see the dilemma? It's run or get eaten. Difficult place to be. The fifth god that gets attacked here is called Neith. And this is actually a goddess. She's considered the creator of the world. She is the mother of Ra, the sun god, and also Sobek, the crocodile guy. And he is the, she is the protector of the largest fish in the Nile that is known as lates, is what they're known as. Larger, they're sometimes known as the Nile perch, is what they're also known as. Well, you're not doing a very good job as a god when all your subjects are floating on the water dead. Does everybody see that Yahweh is trying to show your gods are nothing? Everybody see that? Good, good. Let's move on. We got to hurry. Jerry told me to be done at a certain time. I love you, Jerry. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Now, frogs are cute, right? No, no, they're not cute. I sense a little fear over there. No, they're not cute. No. Okay, well, then then, then plug up your ears for this one. Uh, Verse 3, the Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house. How does this make you feel, Carol? And into your bedroom and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants, and on your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. Just making some bread. What is that? Rabbit, rabbit. Right? Scary, scary. Woo! So the frogs will come up on you and your people. And all your servants. Verse 5, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up from the land. So Aaron does it, and it happens. Verse 7, The magicians did the same with their what? Secret arts, demonic power. It's an imitation that's been put into place of what God is already doing. Remember that. So it says here, verse 8, And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat Yahweh that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, Now watch it. And I will let the people go. (laughs) Who said liar? Good job, okay. (laughs) Good job. I'll let the people go. I love it. We just tell it like it is. Liar. It's good. And they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, now watch this. This is very interesting why he does this. The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people and the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they uh, may be left in the Nile? Notice that. Pharaoh, you want me to ask Yahweh to get rid of the frogs? You tell me the day and time you want it to happen and Yahweh will do it, is what he's saying. You pick. 
Now, why is this? Because this heightens Pharaoh's accountability. See, the sad thing about this is, is you have a cruel man that is the leader of a nation. And when you have a cruel man that is the leader of a nation and he's speaking on behalf of the nation, the nation suffers the repercussions of the bad mistakes of the cruel leader. That's a theme all throughout Scripture. So notice here, we got some problems here because if God does what Pharaoh says on this day would be the best thing. Now all of a sudden, all the excuses have gone out the window. You can't say anymore that Yahweh's not God if he does that. So notice, verse 10, then he said tomorrow, so he said, may it be according to your word that you may, what? What's it say? Verse 10, come on, everybody stick with me. That you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our Elohim. Pharaoh, Yahweh wants you to know that he's Yahweh. You said you didn't know him? Guess what? You're getting real familiar with him. He says here, verse 11, the frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they'll be left in the Nile. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord. He cried to Yahweh concerning the frogs, which it inflicted upon Pharaoh. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them up in heaps, probably over at Carol's house, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Second God is Hecate. Let's put up his yearbook photo. Hecate. And it seems pretty pretty uh, solid what he is. Well, let's go back. Uh, you'll know he's got a frog head. Keep going. There he is. It's the only one I could find. Head of a frog, body of a human. That's a sophomore picture. He hadn't fully grown at that point. He's only a tadpole at that moment. So, But notice... Right here, it was the goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. Frogs were reverenced as a sense of renewal in the culture. That sounds pretty. So that's the attack against that God. Look down at verse 16. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats. Or this has also been translated in two other ways. Lice and mosquitoes. Whatever they were, it was flesh-eating blood-sucking, minuscule things. Because, no, not the IRS. <laughs> okay, enough of that, enough of that. Wow. wonder if we don't just need to pray. <laughs> but think about it. Can you imagine walking out, and dust is fine, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a fine, fine particles and those types of things. All of a sudden, they come to life and jump on you. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're getting at here. It will be all throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 17, they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff, and he struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts. They tried with their secret arts. Oh, we can't imitate this. Notice that. To bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, this is something that is so easy that all it took was Yahweh's finger to accomplish. They're in awe. Finally, you got the guys that were copycats in awe of what's going on in this situation. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, the God that we're dealing with here is Geb. Geb is the God that we're dealing with right there. This whole idea here, he is the God of the earth. Um, 
essentially that's really all we know about him. There's really not much else about him. For some reason, he likes to be pictured with a goose on his head. That was just the fashion back then, I guess. Uh, Let's see here. Verse 20, now the Lord said to Pharaoh, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and you and on your servant and on your people and on your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. We don't know that they were set apart before in these plagues, but, but Yahweh is making a pointed reference to this right now to get Pharaoh's attention. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will occur. Then Yahweh did so. And there were great swarms of flies in the house of Pharaoh, in the houses of the servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of the flies. Notice here, this is the god Kephri is his name, or Kepri, you can say it either way. And he's essentially the god of insects. He has a man, the, the body of a man and the head of a scarab, which is probably something that we're familiar with Egyptian culture, but he is considered the most famous god, the most famous, which means there were many under him, of the insect gods that they worshipped in Egypt. It says here, verse 26, but Moses said, it's not right for you to do so, or sorry, verse 25, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your god within the land. But Moses said, it's not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to Yahweh our Elohim what is an abomination to the Egyptians. And if we sacrifice what's an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, Yahweh our Elohim, as he commands us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far. Man, Pharaoh just can't take a hint. He just can't let them go. He is a slow learner. Notice, I'll let you go, but but I still need to be able to see you from a distance. If you ever want something interesting to Google for your Bible study, it's what's known as the theology of sacred spaces. I've referenced it in your notes. You can look at that if you don't want to write it down. The theology of sacred spaces. Interesting study for your Bible study. Very good. But but Pharaoh violates that by telling them they can't go very far away. Verse 29, Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you. And I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only, now watch this, here is a warning that Moses gives the king of the world at that time. Do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to Yahweh, and Yahweh did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Now let me ask you a question. Reading this as someone who is pro-Yahweh, do you look at this and and just, you kind of want to reach into Exodus and just smack Pharaoh, don't you? You kind of want to just grab him by the neck and just ring it just a little bit. I mean, Christian ringing it, but you know what I mean. It's frustrating, isn't it? And you sit here after a while and you think, well, good grief, they totally deserve what they're getting. Good for Yahweh. Yay, Yahweh. Down with Egypt kind of thing. Did you know that that's not how Yahweh feels about Egypt? 
Were you aware of this? It never ceases to amaze me as I read the Scriptures, the extended mercy of God. I want to show you something very interesting. Take your Bibles, turn over with me to Isaiah 19. We'll finish here. Isaiah 19 is prophetic. It is speaking of a time in the future when something will occur. And we will actually start in verse 17 in order to give us a reference to this idea so that we don't miss what's going on. Isaiah 19, starting in verse 17, and I want you to think about what you know about Israel through the years, historically speaking, where they are now and where they are supposed to be from what we understand from what the Bible's told us about the future. Verse 17, chapter 19 of Isaiah, verse 17. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Now, with the exception of Yahweh, we know, if we're familiar with this, what's going on in Exodus, he overthrows them and leads them out kind of idea. And, and honestly, you don't hear of Egypt anymore on, the, on this national or the, the international scene. You don't hear of them anymore until the time of Solomon. That's how long it took Egypt to begin to recover from what Yahweh did to Egypt at that time. They were completely shamed, dismantled, and the surrounding peoples of the cities were scared to death of the Israelites because of what Yahweh did. News traveled and it stuck with people and made an impression for years and years and years. But this will be a time in the future when Judah, where Jerusalem is, the lower half of Israel, is going to be a terror to Egypt. Now look at verse 18. In that day, Five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction, or some have said the city of the sun, which a lot of people believe it's Heliopolis is what it is, which is an Egyptian city that we have. It says here, verse 19, In that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a champion. And he will deliver. He will save them. Thus, Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt. Everybody see the consistency? What is it to know who Yahweh is? Notice this is going much further beyond what we just see in Exodus. Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship and sacrifice an offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to Yahweh, and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Egypt was considered the older enemies of God, older in the Old Testament. Assyria was the more newer enemies of God. In Isaiah's time was the idea. There's a highway between the two. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt. My what? 
Is this the same God? Or is his mercy just that great? Everybody see that? Oh gosh, I can't wipe the smile off my face. Because here he is coming in, overthrowing their gods, teaching them a lesson, showing them who he is, and they are blatant, stubborn-hearted, strong-armed, defiant. And one day they will clamor to be in his presence. And here's the amazing thing. Yahweh allows it. Egypt is not like Canaan that was wiped completely off the earth because of the greatness of their sin and blasphemy. He actually has mercy on them and allows them to survive. Egypt will be called his people. And Assyria, those were crazy people. They actually would conquer people, skin them, and then use their skin to to coat their furniture. They're crazy. Our furniture might need a patch job, but not like that. That's crazy. The Assyrians will be the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Here's all I ask from you. Let's take one moment of silence and just be in awe of the mercy of God. Bow your heads with me. Father, there is not a people so stubborn that you cannot reach them. There is not a person that has disqualified themselves that you cannot qualify. You are merciful beyond what I could ever begin to imagine or grasp or conjure or communicate. To see there will be a time in the future, Jesus will come as not just Savior, but champion, and will rescue Egypt of all people. Egypt. And you will actually call the Egyptians your people. Your grace is so much more merciful than our sin, it's so much more merciful than our stubbornness, our hard heartedness are unwillful, just appalling behavior sometimes. Father, you love so much more beyond that. So convict our hearts of that, and may we be appreciative that we serve an eternal and sovereign and just God, but also a merciful, merciful God. We pray to the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.